You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our topic today is sex um, within the uh, in a story in a story context. And it's really a, a, a really an important topic. We looked at uh, Alicia Long, who's a professor at LSU, uh, whose expertise includes New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, uh, but also sex as a matter of social policy and in uh, urban living, and and, uh, and it really helps you understand a lot that went on in the community. Hi, Alicia. Thank you very much. She also has couple of books, uh, at least, a lot of articles, but uh, in 2014, she released a book called The Great Southern Babylon, Sex, Race, and Respectability in New Orleans, 1865 to 1920. Alicia, that would be roughly the period of uh, of Storyville, wouldn't it? Well, Storyville technically existed from 1897 to 1917, but like a lot of historians, I felt like I had to go back in time some distance to understand how Storyville came to be, how that story ordinance passed in 1897. And so, yeah, that's a, you know, it's a period of time where the city's very well known for prostitution, certainly. And um, during the Storyville Vice era, uh, Vice District era, that whole 20 years is sort of where that reputation reaches its um, apex, I guess. Okay. And the other book, which uh, recently came out, uh, it, it, it's actually about Jim Garrison and the Kennedy assassination. I'm thinking, well, gee, I thought that was resolved years ago. She's found some new angles to it. And uh, I think it's an interesting study in New Orleans. It's called Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Kennedy Assassination as a Sex Crime. And so uh, we're going to talk about both. Uh, Lisa, let's, sort of, let's go back to the 1920s area we're just talking about. Can you set the scene with New Orleans was like, uh, especially in, in, in terms of things that reflected attitudes towards, uh, uh, towards sex. Sure, well, you know, we think of the 1920s as sort of the roaring 20s, but in a way, New Orleans had just gone through um, a very intense and rapid period of change. Number one, the uh, federal government forced the city to close down the Storyville Vice District in 1897. And the reason they did that is because they had soldiers encamped in the city and they were preparing to go to Europe and fight in World War I. So Storyville is ended really by federal mandate in New Orleans. Then there's this sort of the dislocation of World War I, there's a flu epidemic, and then in 1920 you get prohibition. So that had been a very uh, compressed period of change for people in New Orleans. And like New Orleanians often do, uh, people ignored prohibition to the degree that they could, but it did put a damper on uh, what had been for decades known as a sort of wide open city. And suddenly um, sort of uh, the way these businesses operate has to change in light of um, again, a federal mandate of prohibition. So that's sort of, there's a very funny um, newspaper article uh, that's published on, I think, January 2nd, 1920, and the Thomas Picayune is kind of moralizing about how people should just get used to the new order. And of course, we all know that New Orleans did not uh, accede to that new order. Now, when Storyville was established, there were red light districts around the country. I mean, it wasn't unique to be having that. What was unique about Storyville? Sure, and you're right. Any city of any size um, in the late 19th century had some sort of recognized area where there were brothels or bordellos, as they were sometimes called as well. But what made New Orleans unique is one, it had been for a very long time as a port city known as a place where prostitution was tolerated. And in the 19th century, particularly before the Civil War, it's scattered around the city in a lot of different neighborhoods. And that starts to be compressed during the Civil War. In fact, there's an ordinance that's passed in 1865 to sort of try to move uh, 
brothels into a tighter area. And those ordinances just keep kind of like compressing that area until 1897, they have a sort of a single compressed neighborhood and a sort of adjunct to it slightly uptown um, that, is, that those are supposed to be the only places where prostitution occurs in the city. And so what makes that experiment distinctive is that the city actually um, fought against some lawsuits brought against it. And that case um, called Lowe v. City of New Orleans actually went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and the Supreme Court passed on the city having a vice district. And so in the aftermath of that court victory, other cities in other places copy the New Orleans Vice District Ordinance, Alexandria does, um, Houston does. So there are some cities who follow that model, but it's really that model of an ordinance-based uh, vice district with very distinctive boundaries, which made the New Orleans experiment distinctive. And, um, and of course, the story is this was uh, proposed by an alderman, alderman whose name was Story, and so it became, it became um, identified with him. Yes. So the district was established, I guess, intentionally on the edge of the French Quarter. So if you're in the quarter and you get, and uh, and you cross Basin Street, there you're the, there you are in, in Storyville. Um, it apparently flourished. From what we know about it, I mean, you know, we hear about um, the houses in Storyville, and the, and and some of them were fairly lush, and we hear about the music. I mean, was it? a better place than most red light districts and other places? I mean, I wouldn't think so. I think there, there were very elaborate brothels on Basin Street in particular, but there are also a lot of really um, sort of divey, low-end uh, facilities. Um, there are even kind of individual cribs. Um, I think it would have been in many ways a kind of exciting place uh, to visit, and particularly after the uh, Union Station Terminal starts to roll trains in there around 1908. Um, and, you know, as joyful as New Orleans can be, I'm sure Storyville sometimes reflected that. But it was also a neighborhood where there was, you know, an awful lot of violence, uh, some of it individual violence, but also by 1913 or so, you have a sort of outside uh, organized crime figures coming in and clashing with sort of like local homegrown uh, Storyville entrepreneurs. So, you know, there was um, there was a fair amount of violence. There's a lot of drinking in the district. In fact, the most money in the vice district was made on alcohol sales um, and not sex. And so it's, a, you know, it's a sort of a big version, I think, big body version of what Bourbon Street is now where there's some actually really august establishments on Bourbon Street. There's also just a lot of really low end, um, uh, low rent, get the tourists drunk um, and move them on their way establishments. So for those who know New Orleans, if you can picture going down Canal Street, um, there's this statue of Simone Boulevard, the monument to him. And it's at the beginning of what is a, a long, what we call a median, I guess or it's kind of a neutral ground, but it's a, a long green space. And that's where the railroad station used to be. And that was that's a Southern right. Railroad station. Yeah. Uh, and it was um, long, it was, it was deep. And the stories are, and that, uh, um, I don't know if they're true or not, but there were stories about when the trains would come in, that there'd be women in those houses and they knew the trains were coming in and they'd be waving to the passengers and, and inviting them in. Yeah, come out on balconies and stuff. And there, you know, there's some reformers in the city who are very much against the vice district. Um, and Philip Werlein, for instance, who owned the big music and piano store on Canal Street, was one of those um, one of those people who really disputed it. And he and some others about 1910 passed uh, or sort of influenced the council to pass ordinances where they had to have uh, glass that was not completely uh, transparent on those windows and doors so that they could not uh, be uh, enticing people coming in on the trains. And they even wanted to put up a wall between the edge of Basin Street and the uh, train station. Of course, they were not able to do that. But yeah, it's a, you know, I'm sure it was quite a um, spectacle for people coming into town to sort of roll in past those very fancy uh, Basin Street brothels. Now, from what you wrote, there are two key factors in understanding all this. One is the acceptance of, um, of prostitution. But the other is the, the sensitivity there is about race issues. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Storyville was totally segregated, wasn't it? No. Um, I think it was meant to be a segregated vice district. But what's so interesting is if you think about the timing, 
right? It comes out of a way of thinking about making social solutions based on segregation, right? So the Supreme Court passes on Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. And it's not really a coincidence that the city has a sort of residential segregation ordinance that it passes in 1897, because this is a way sort of progressive reformers think about how to solve problems to sort of segregate people or occupations from each other. But what we know is that there were uh, plenty of establishments in Storyville run by women of color um, at that time who would have described themselves as octoroons or quadroons, a very light-skinned mixed-race women. But there are also uh, establishments run by a very dark-complected women of color um, who would have identified as Black. Um, and so, you know, and you can see this through mugshots, for instance, there are a lot of mugshots of women who are arrested for doing things inside Storyville, not soliciting sex within the boundaries of Storyville, but getting into fights or being accused of robbing someone. And so the women who worked in that vice district were um, young and old, uh, local and from out of town, uh, black and white, uh, some of them Hispanic. And so it was really quite a, um, a mixed place. And the uh, state passes a sort of um, ordinance aimed at getting better control of liquor interests. And it's after that law passes, it's called the Gay Shattuck Law. And after that law passes, then there is an attempt to sort of uh, segregate the two different sections of Storyville into white or black. But like all uh, kind of vice businesses, there are, you know, people break the rules um, when they can, and particularly when there's money in it for them. And so there was race mixing in Storyville, absolutely. And long before that, there was something else which is also associated with a um... New Orleans, I guess you'd say, sexual uniqueness, and that was the, uh, the tradition of the quadroon balls. Um, right, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, yeah, well, there's, there are advertisements and there's evidence for these kind of balls that were exclusively for white men and for uh, women of color, free women of color, um, rather than enslaved women of color. And um, you know, people like Emily Clark have written about this, about the, you know, the, it's called the strange history of the American quadroon. And what she dates a lot of this to is the uh, incursion of many free people of color um, who come into New Orleans in the early 19th century from uh, Saint-Domingue in the wake of the revolution there. And so you get a large population of free women of color. And many of them do develop uh, relationships with men um, who sometimes provide for them with property um, or provide for them in some other way, um, sometimes acknowledge the children they have with these women. And so this is a, a sort of a characteristic aspect of what people notice and talk about in New Orleans in the early uh, 19th century. And that tradition sort of, I don't know if it's necessarily carried over, but people pay homage to it in the vice district. And so that you have these sort of quadroon uh, houses or octoroon houses um, where women you know, their brand, in a sense, is really selling the fact that they're mixed race. And this becomes associated with New Orleans in many ways. And probably these women would have really had no other way to support themselves. Well, I mean, you have to think about what the options were for unmarried women in the 19th and early 20th century. And essentially, you know, um, if you were not respectably married, um, you could have been a seamstress. There's very little industrial or factory work in New Orleans. You could have been a maid. Um, so there's not a lot to do besides uh, be a domestic or work in the sex trade. And so if you're a woman on your own, for whatever set of reasons, um, this could be um, the way to make the most money that you are probably likely to make uh, in any other uh, type of work that you might enter. And so it's, um, you know, certainly understandable. Um, and people did this for long periods of time, but people also did it for short periods of time or when their families got into economic distress. So it was a way for um, women to make money uh, in, you know, in a time and a place where there was not another set of opportunities like that for them. What were the lives like for the women who worked in Storyville? Were there any of that somehow had a good life the, the, had the, or, or, or was it just like, you know, going from one customer to another? You know, I mean, I think for the women who um, were uh, skilled enough and lucky enough and probably hard-nosed enough to buy property, 
uh, and then themselves become madams. Um, for women who are in those sorts of positions, they can make enormous amounts of money. And I write about a woman named Mary Dubler who calls herself Josie Arlington, but she made an extraordinary amount of money working as a madam in Storyville. And she had been a prostitute when she was very young, but she is, you know, I mean, she's smart and uh, she's tough and she is able to kind of parlay those qualities into uh, really, I mean, exploiting other women in a sense but making a lot of money for herself. And she takes care of, care of members of her extended family. So I think, you know, the women who um, are the most successful uh, in, you know, they have what money can buy. And, and that does make life um, pleasant and easier. Um, but, you know, there are also people at the other end of the scale who are working into their 40s and uh, clearly don't have much materially and are doing this because, they need money and there's nothing else they can do. And so, you know, in like any neighborhood or compressed area of, a, you know, a complex city, people had really different kinds of experiences. So in 1917, when the, uh, when the military closed down, and first we should mention that this also happened around the country, like wherever, because, because of World War I, wherever there was a military facility in a city near where there was a bordello that they were closed down, so that wasn't unique to New Orleans. No, but New Orleans tried to hold on to its district longer than a lot of other cities. And in fact, the mayor of New Orleans, Martin Berman, went to Washington and argued with the Department of the Army um, to try to keep Storyville open, arguing that it was the most efficient way to regulate access of soldiers and sailors to uh, prostitution. And he is successful in arguing this to the Department of the Army, but the Department of the Navy under Josephus Daniels actually finally forces the city's hand. And they're the ones who really forced the city to close New Orleans because what New Orleans wanted also was sort of the federal largesse that came from having uh, soldiers and sailors in the city as they prepared to uh, uh, move them to Europe. And so it, you know, it became a kind of economic trade-off and ultimately the city conceded because otherwise it felt like it would not be able to um, reap the benefits of, of being a sort of important port as soldiers uh, were trained and then moved on to Europe for World War I. But by 2017, the war ended. Um, so wasn't Storyville heading, or wasn't that argument heading for a, a dead end? Well, I mean, by then the ordinance had essentially been overturned by the city council. And, and I think by that time, those two or three years are really important two or three years. And by that time, the sort of shape of prostitution had changed some. I mean, remember you have prohibition, so it's harder to run these wide open brothels um, where you have drinking and gambling and prostitution because you can't have drinking. Um, and so the business becomes more surreptitious and a lot of women who owned these big brothels on uh, Basin Street, remember those are big properties and big, big investments. And yeah, a lot of those women uh, turn those things into boarding houses or they turn them into uh, restaurants and hotels. And so prostitution still went in on those things, but um, the, you know, I guess the business model uh, and the overtness with which it had been done really changed uh, into the 1920s. And so the girls that worked there, I assume a lot of them probably went from New Orleans. So probably people that just drifted into town. Do, do we know anything well, about them? I mean, both things. There were a lot of local women who worked in Storyville uh, for short periods of time or longer periods of time. You got to remember sort of in the winter racing season. So from November to whenever Mardi Gras occurred, there is a lot of tourism in the city. And so people, uh, you know, work in Storyville seasonally. Um, some women come inside or come into the city from other uh, states and locales. I mean, places like Mississippi, but they also come from cities like Chicago and New York. So um, it's a very, uh, you know, there's a lot of short-term labor uh, in Storyville, particularly during what, you know, they would have considered a, a profitable time to work there. Now across, Basin, well, let me think about Basin Street. I don't know if you've looked into this. There's a song called Basin Street Blues. Mm -hmm. And I think about people who've heard that song all their life and they go to New Orleans and they say, man, I gotta see this Basin Street. It must really be something. And it's nothing, okay? And that, I mean, I mean, there's really nothing really interesting on, on, on Basin Street. Was there a time when it was ever, or was it always just a gateway to Storyville? Or was there a time when there was really something special about Basin Street? Well, those houses on Basin Street were very grand. In fact, that song Basin Street Blues was written by a guy named Spencer Williams, whose aunt, 
actually was uh, a brothel owner named Lulu White. And so Spencer Williams had seen Basin Street when it was sort of in its, you know, high glory and wrote about that. I mean, it's a very romantic song. And today you would have be sort of hard pressed to talk to people about what was special about Basin Street. But I think there was a period of time when it was a sort of uh, certainly national and, uh, you know, a national tourist attraction. And um, so that's a lovely song. And, I, you know, I think it speaks to something that was probably true um, and the way that Williams viewed that street at that time. But, um, you know, it's not much to look at these days, I don't think. No, and, and despite efforts to try to get economic revitalization in that area, it never really has, has happened yet. I mean, uh, maybe it will. But anyway, across Basin Street from where Storyville was, you started getting into the French Quarter. And, and as the French Quarter developed, um, you know, it had its entertainment, it had its, mu its music. It was also known for its uh, for its strip shows. Was that part of the, the heritage from, uh, uh, I mean, the, the strip shows never went all the way, okay. But uh, was that part of the heritage from Storyville? I mean, there were sexual performers in Storyville. So, you know, stripping and other kinds of explicit sex acts uh, performed for audiences uh, took place in uh, Storyville, you know, I don't think there's a sort of direct line uh, between uh, kind of the emergence of strip tease on Bourbon Street and what had occurred uh, within Storyville, but certainly kind of like uh, thinking about, you know, unclothed women or women uh, taking their clothes off in, you know, on a stage um, for a group of men and sometimes women, um, you know, was certainly not unique to New Orleans. I mean, it comes also out of um, not so much um, not so much vaudeville, but um, you know, a kind of performing that was done, um, you know, where women danced and sang, and they did it in in the French Quarter in these things called uh, concert saloons, and those existed on Royal Street and Bourbon Street in the 1870s and 1880s. And so I would, you know, I would be more inclined to trace the kind of um, burlesque dancing done in those concert saloons to what becomes the kind of striptease culture on Bourbon Street, rather than Storyville per se. Yeah, there probably was a little bit more theater to them. Like for, like there was the, uh, was it the, the oyster girl who had, right. with, with like a big oyster shell and had- Right. Had, well, I mean, you know, the, the, that's an art form. I mean, a very, you know, skilled burlesque performer is a wonderful thing. Um, to watch. And again, like in everything, there's all kinds of levels of it, but, you know, very fancy burlesque performance, uh, even today is, is wonderful to watch. And so, you know, I think you had some of that in sort of a classic, you know, 1950s uh, Bourbon Street era. You know, the, um, the song, If Ever I Cease to Love, which today is the anthem of Mardi Gras, came from a burlesque song from Lydia Thomas, who was from uh, England, and she had what was described as a burlesque show, but I don't think it was it was a, a strip type burlesque. So it sounds like more like a, a music comedy sort of thing. Um, but that was um, one of her songs that became became popular in New Orleans and is and is the anthem of Carnival. So it's actually named after that. Huh. Um, we're talking to Alicia Long, LSU professor of uh, specializing in New Orleans and in Louisiana and, and also in sexual history. Uh, had the, the book came out in two. 2014, uh, called The Great Southern Babylon, Sex, Race, and Respectability in New Orleans, 1865 to 1920. And it has a book that just came out this year uh, called Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the, the Kennedy Assassination of a Sex Crime. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But just so we're talking about music. Didn't Jelly Roll Martin play in Storyville for a while, at least as a kid? He certainly says he did. And I mean, there's no reason not to believe that he performed there. I mean, he describes some of the houses that he played in. But, you know, I mean, General Morton was also a big storyteller. And so it's hard with him sometimes to distinguish a fact from mm -hmm. fiction, from fancy. Um, and so he's, um, you know, he's one of those figures who, you know, he calls himself the inventor of jazz. <laughs> we know it's not that simple. Um, you know, but yeah, he was a young man. And uh, like a lot of musicians, um, that's a place where they could pay or play and earn money. And it was a very, uh, you know, um, lucrative job uh, within the confines of being uh, a musician in New Orleans during that period of time, especially a musician of color. Well, he didn't, I, I think the feeling is that he didn't invent jazz, but they <laughs> kind of concealed a little bit that he did add a little bit to the, 
piano playing style, uh, the jazz. We have a few seconds, just a couple, a few bars I'm gonna play. If I guess with Jelly Rolls Morton's classic, uh, it's all piano, but this could be what I guess you might've heard uh, in third, now this is recorded in, in, uh, in, in 23, so it'd have been a little bit later, but he says he wrote it 20 years earlier. So it would have been around during the time of Storyville. So this is the, the, the King Porter Stomp. He said that the, I always wonder where that name came from. And he said it was uh, named after a friend whose name was Porter King. Uh, and so in, in his honor. And through the years, some of the big bands would, uh, uh, would play that. So I, I guess there was sort of a link between Storyville and the evolution of jazz. Sure. I think that's absolutely one. And, you know, plenty of writers have documented it. Um, I just think for a long time, uh, in terms of the way history was written about Storyville, it was kind of considered the place, the birthplace of jazz and sort of the prostitution business was sort of incidental. And I think that sort of gets things backwards. I mean, you know, that the, the prostitution and vice in Storyville were the reason for that district to have been created. And we also know just based on jazz scholarship that the music that becomes jazz is being played all around the city and not just in Storyville. It's just that there are entertainment venues in Storyville and places where musicians gather late at night. So it's one of the places that music is developing, um, but it's certainly not the only place. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a New Orleans phenomenon, not necessarily just a Storyville phenomenon. Um, but maybe Storyville gave it a boot, especially with that train station right alongside, you know? I mean, you know, people get back on the train, so I mean, you gotta hear this, this crazy music that I, I heard in New Orleans. That, that, you know, they could have been a, an influence, I guess. Yeah. Did, any other, did Louis Armstrong do any other plans in Storyville? Well, he was a, a young guy um, during the time Storyville existed. He would have just barely been out of his adolescence when Storyville ended. But he, when he worked for the uh, Karnofskys, he actually talks about having been in a sort of junk wagon uh, going through Storyville. And so he describes some of that. And then he also, um, as a young man, and this would be kind of slightly post Storyville era, he actually attempts, he says in his own memoirs, to try to be a pimp um, and to try to pimp out one of his girlfriends, but she beats him up and he says he wasn't very good at being a pimp. So he just decided to dedicate himself uh, to being a musician. And I guess uh, world music can uh, be thankful um, that he turned his attention there um, and uh, became really one of the probably two best known uh, people from New Orleans in the 20th century. The other person I would think would be Huey Long. Now you mentioned um, the Kronowskis. I, I just want to underscore because of their contribution to music history is that the Kronowskis was a store that, that uh, kind of alongside uh, Poydras, somewhere around there. It was like a, uh, a, a junk shop hardware store kind of thing. And apparently Louis Armstrong worked there. Mm -hmm. And the story is that Mr. Kronowski gave to young Louis a cornet. And that was his first cornet. And so it was the, the cornet that Mr. Kronowski gave him that he, he started playing with um, with some success. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think cities have different personalities and, and different attitudes? And, and there are things about them that make some cities more permissive than others? And if so, I, I think New Orleans would rank high on that. Yeah, I mean, I do think cities have distinctive personalities and cultures, and there tend to be things that are durable in those cultures over time. And so, you know, a kind of permissiveness um, has pervaded New Orleans culture, I think, since the time of the city's founding in 1718, in that it didn't always live up to the expectations of outsiders. And people always sort of did what they wanted to do. And so that's contextual. I mean, it's surrounded by a much more conservative, uh, you know, Protestant Southern kind of um, 
environment. And so in contrast, the city always seems permissive, but too many people have noticed it too much over time for there not to be something substantive about it. Um, it's a city that feels distinctive. It's a city that looks distinctive. It's a city that has uh, completely unique cultural forms. And, um, you know, there are lots of things that go into making that the case. But yeah, I mean, New Orleans is very special. Um, it's not the only special city, but it's a, a really unique one with a really durable culture and very well, distinctive New culture. People know it when they see it. Well, New Orleans was less Protestant and more Catholic. And that could, that could be a difference that the Catholics tend to have a, a more open culture. Hey, they're the only people that serve wine during their services, uh, you know? And <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so there's a feeling that maybe it's a little bit more of a permissive thing. Also being a port, you had all, all these people come in. I think, I think it has a big influence. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the people who ruled New Orleans between the between the Spanish and the French, uh, I think that they were, I won't say more permissive, but they weren't as, as strict as like the British would have been. And that, that those could have all influenced it. Sure. And it's, a, you know, it's an important commercial center in the antebellum era. I mean, and not just for its position as the, the region's nation or the, the nation's largest slave port uh, and, and market or set of markets. Um, but it's also a commercial center. And so you have a lot of people coming into New Orleans to do business, men traveling alone. And I think that also contributes to that culture of permissiveness around sexuality. Okay. I want to talk about you, but before that, before we move away from Southern Babylon, let me just put you on the spot here. Mm -hmm. Give me something from the book that really surprised you the most. I think the thing that surprised me the most is that um, in 1897, when the city tries to segregate the vice district on the basis of race, uh, a woman named Willie Piazza filed suit against the city to defend her property because if the city had been successful at doing that, she would have had to abandon significant real estate that she owned in Basin Street. And one of the things that's real interesting to me is about two dozen other people joined her, um, you know, regular prostitutes, some other property owners, a couple of men. And so she was sort of filed this important lawsuit that nobody really knows about. But I think it speaks to um, the way that women in Storyville understood their place in the social order. And they knew that it was uh, bounded and limited in a certain way, but they also uh, had enough property to assert themselves, let's say in the courts. Um, and so that particular court case led by Willie Piazza is something that really surprised me in the records of the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court. And so they're kind of, you know, a number of cases that first book is really based on uh, cases that made it to the Louisiana Supreme Court. And those cases have transcripts that run to hundreds of pages. And so in those hundreds of pages, you get very rich descriptions of Storyville uh, and the people who lived and worked there. And um, so I guess that's the way I would answer that question. But it sounds like from what you say about Josie Arlington, that women had some flexibility in being able to purchase property. I mean, there were other places during that time when women couldn't purchase property. Yeah, well, Mary Dubler, uh, who becomes Josie Arlington, is an incredibly successful um, woman and uh, entrepreneur and owner of real estate, but she actually has a man who does a lot of the business for her. And many people assume they were married. They were not. She would never marry him because she understood the financial repercussions of that. Um, but he um, actually did a lot of business for her because I think, you know, those kind of large financial transactions were still seen as the domain of men. So even for a really successful woman like herself, there were limits even that she perceived on what she could do successfully and where she might need male representation in business and in real estate in particular. So she had the, uh, the brains about what to do financially, but also about how to play the system. Uh, absolutely, she did. She was a very savvy woman and uh, one of the women uh, who I think is the most interesting and her story is really uh, very compelling. Isn't it too bad that the buildings, if not necessarily the, uh, the services, but the buildings that once comprised Storyville don't exist anymore, that we don't have a Storyville area with shops and restaurants and that sort of thing. That people yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. But I think it had become so kind of um, dilapidated by the time uh, the federal government stepped in in the 1930s that there wasn't much left to save at that point. Um, and, you know, that's 
too bad in a way because it would be interesting to see those buildings still extant. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the price of what at the time was considered progress, I suppose. And Basin Street was named after, you know, it used to be a canal that went along mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And the uh, the actual basin, I think, is where the auditorium was. But uh, no, we need the interstate. I mean, I don't want to argue with that. Just imagine if that was still a canal, right? <laughs> and you could go and, you know, from the lakefront down to the French Quarter and uh, on the canal and then get out and, I, I don't know, and go to Storyville in a good kind of way or in a certain kind of way. Anyway, I guess that's happened. Okay. Your new book, Cruising for Conspirators, How a New Orleans DA Prosecuted the Assassination of a Sex Crime. Okay, uh, I'm gonna ask you to talk about it. Let me just set it up a little bit for anybody who might not be familiar, but the, uh, there was a district attorney in New Orleans named Jim Garrison. And in the years, not long after the Kennedy assassination, people all over were trying to uh, nail some kind of a, a conspiracy. And then one day out of the blue, Garrison called the press conference and says, He's in this too, that he has evidence to believe that it originated uh, uh, in New Orleans. And it became a big story. And ultimately, a, a man named Clay Shaw was indicted and went on trial. Let me, let me just qualify one thing, though, for the, for the assassination bluffs. I don't think this disputes the fact that Oswald shot Kennedy. I think this is more about what was behind. I mean, what, what was behind the structure in terms of getting all that to happen? Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yes. So let me just say uh, straight up that there are thousands of books that are attempting to solve the mysteries uh, related to or alleged to relate to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And that is not what I'm doing in Cruising for Conspirators. Um, but what I am doing is focusing on the one prosecution that was ever brought into a court of law uh, related to uh, the assertion that Clay Shaw uh, using an alias Clay Bertrand, had uh, conspired with Lee Harvey Oswald and a man named David Ferry to plan the assassination uh, in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. So the fact that the only trial in, you know, all those alleged conspiracies took place in New Orleans is really important. Um, and it's also important to think about how Garrison was able to do that. Um, and part of the way he was able to do that is to leverage a really long-standing set of pre prejudices um, in law and in fact against gay men. Right. Yeah, because of all this we've talked about that the that what this brings into the discussion is homosexuality, mm -hmm. uh, which becomes a key, a, a key issue. Uh, as, um, as they said was truly with Clay Shaw, some people said it was a by Garrison, but but just give me a little stream of consciousness here. Tell me about the book and what you think. Well, what I think is that if you understand in a very careful way the evidentiary foundation of Jim Garrison's investigation and prosecution of Clay Shaw, then you understand um, that the entire prosecution was built on a very shoddy foundation. Um, made up of prejudice and some uh, sort of fantastic storytelling done by two New Orleanians the weekend after the assassination. And that's the foundation upon which he ultimately bases that prosecution. And, you know, Shaw, in a way, this is what I argue in the book and I think demonstrate, uh, becomes a placeholder so that Garrison can press a prosecution um, the point of which really is not so much to um, convict Clay Shaw, although I'm sure he would have been happy to do that. Um, the point was to provide a forum for questioning the lone gunman conclusion of the Warren Commission. And they spent a significant amount of trial time on things that took place in Dallas. And so Clay Shaw is of course um, exonerated, but Jim Garrison does not stop going after him. And Clay Shaw dies in 1974 and le really leaves the field open for Jim Garrison and later for people who uh, buy his interpretation to really make a mark on the historical record that I think profoundly misrepresents what happened in New Orleans in the 1960s and also uh, why we should think about why it matters. But, but the book talks somewhat about, about the attitudes towards gay men and the prosecution of them. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, 
you know, part of what I do in the book is I don't stay isolated to the 1960s. And I go back to the 1950s and explain how um, as gay men became a more visible part of the French Quarter, there was a lot of pushback on that. And that leads to the adoption of ordinances um, and also some state laws that seek to sanction gay men, right? And it's, that's a very clear line. And Jim Garrison in the 1950s is still on the sidelines. But by the time he is elected district attorney in 1962, there's already an environment that is very legally threatening to gay men. And so, you know, a lot of people have, in a way that surprises me, have argued that either Jim Garrison wasn't homophobic or homophobia didn't have anything to do with it, or they aren't homophobic. And that I'm somehow saying that anyone who believes in a conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination is a homophobe. And that's not what I'm doing at all. I mean, what I'm doing is showing how uh, Jim Garrison and other people in that investigation sort of leveraged prejudice against gay men and Clay Shaw in particular to make him legible as a suspect. And then that continues as a, a sort of line of investigation. In, that's very clear um, in Jim Garrison's own records. Um, and after the fact, will also uh, come to be used in the portrayals that Oliver Stone uh, used as characterization in um, his movie JFK. So, you know, that investigation has had a very long uh, half-life, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the interpretation of it has been really flawed or it gets lost because people want to argue for or against Jim Garrison. And that's not what I'm doing in this book. I'm trying to sort of set a context that helps us understand those things rather than something simply that's about pointing fingers. What was the root of the prejudice against gay men? You know, I mean, I think it really goes back to um, the turn of the 20th century. And you have uh, people like uh, the sexologist Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who writes this long study about, uh, it's called Psychopathia Sexualis, and it sort of lays out uh, the ways in which certain kinds of sexual behavior were not just deemed criminal, but associated with other kinds of criminality. And that ideology has a sort of long impact on um, other people who study sexuality. And so for instance, J. Edgar Hoover by the 1930s is uh, sort of suggesting that the worst kinds of crime are done by uh, sexual deviants, right? And the FBI sort of gets involved in this and it becomes a sort of um, a way of thinking about criminal culpability. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's a cultural set of ideas. It's not precise and exact and it changes over time, but it finds expression both in law, um, which criminalizes this kind of sexual behavior. And in fact, in the prejudices that people uh, carry around about uh, homosexuality. And uh, so when you get a place like New Orleans uh, and particularly the French Quarter that starts to develop a pretty visible community of uh, gay people, uh, lesbians and gay men and uh, sort of uh, cross-dressing performers, what we would call trans people today. Um, you know, you get a lot of pushback by people who themselves live in the French Quarter. And so it's a, you know, it's a population that uh, is being arrested at very high rates. Um, and so their mugshots are being taken and they're legally vulnerable in any case. Um, and so I think Jim Garrison understood um, not just intuitively, but legally, um, the way this population was vulnerable. And that helped him press his investigation. And in fact, he attempted to extract testimony from uh, several people uh, who were uh, themselves homosexual or who were doing business uh, that was uh, dependent on uh, gay people as customers. So this is very apparent in the historical record, if, if you're willing to look for it. And um, before all this happened, Clay Shaw, as I recall, was a very respected gentleman. He, he was head of the World Trade Center. Well, he was the managing director of the International Trademark. And so that means he's kind of like a day in, day out administrator. Um, you know, the board, like in, in many of these kinds of the complex organizations, the board has an enormous amount of power uh, in policy, but he's really the day-to-day -day managing director of, of the thing. And so it's, it's an important job. It's a very high profile job. He's in the newspapers a lot. Um, you know, he's also prominent in the French Quarter and he's a, a well-known uh, 
person who buys and rehabs and resells properties in the French Quarter. So he's prominent, um, but he also is, um, he has a very active uh, life as a gay man. And um, I think it was, uh, you know, sort of for many people don't ask, don't tell uh, kind of situation where he was concerned. So when he was outed, I don't think a lot of people were necessarily shocked that he was outed. I think they were shocked that he was arrested because it seemed so unlikely that he was a person, uh, not just who had been involved with the Kennedy assassination, but who uh, was accused of um, sort of associating with people who it seems pretty unlikely he would have been associating with. And his position, his prestigious position with, with, the, well, with the international trademark kind of fed into the conspiracies because it's, it was like, aha, he's got international connections. He probably talks to to Cubans and Russians and everybody else. And so that yeah, well, he was, and he was bilingual, right? He could speak Spanish. And this is a period of time where there's a lot of uh, sort of questions about Cuba. Um, there's a big uh, Cuban immigrant population in New Orleans. So, you know, it's like a very heated up kind of late Cold War uh, environment. And so there's a lot of suspicion. And, you know, people want answers about what happened to Kennedy. And if somebody said they could provide it, um, people were willing to listen. And you know, but ultimately it could be that the answer is so simple, it's unbelievable. And that is that uh, Lee Oswald got up one day and saw Kennedy was coming and said, I think I'm gonna go kill him. You know, I think it was, he was that kind of guy, you know, so. He was a very strange guy. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, he kept, you know, he kept something called the historic diary. <laughs> like, you know, he was a person who had uh, delusions uh, about his own importance in the world. And, you know, if Marina Oswald's testimony is accurate, he had actually taken a shot um, at um, another man, General Edwin Walker in Dallas in April of 1963, suggesting that he was capable of that kind of a politically focused violence. I mean, in that case, Walker was a real right winger, um, but, um, you know, it's, um, it's not hard to believe that he would have acted impetuously and dramatically. Yeah. If I may just say this on, on the side real quickly, then we get, get back to your book. A few years ago, I was in Dallas and we took a tour, which included going into the Texas Book Depository mm -hmm. and to the window where he shot from. Mm -hmm. And they have Mark where his rifle was. And on the street, you see an X where the car was. You know, you always hear about this being a really hard shot, a really distant shot. It wasn't. He was on the sixth floor, which is maybe like what was that, 60 feet away or something like that. But you look at it from up there, it wasn't that long of a shot, uh, which anyway, that just impressed me. So anyway, for the, so where's the link as Garrison sees it between Shaw and assuming Oswald did and Oswald? I mean, who pulls the up? Yeah, the link comes out of two stories that were told over the weekend after the assassination. A guy named Jack Martin and a guy named Dean Adams Andrews both call uh, the local police, but they also call the FBI and the Secret Service and say they know something about Lee Harvey Oswald and the people he was associating with in the summer of 1963. Um, and what those two stories, which arose independently, have in common is Lee Harvey Oswald, but also suggestions that he was uh, associating with known homosexuals in New Orleans. Um, and the name Clay Bertrand is like the only name uh, that's sort of uh, given by this guy named Dean Adams Andrews, and he can't identify him. But in 1966, late 1966, early 1967, Jim Garrison decides Clay Shaw had been using the uh, alias Clay Bertrand. And on that basis, uh, he sort of like lays the predicate for arresting him and charging him. And at the time he arrested and charged him, they had one eyewitness who was willing to say Shaw was one of the co-conspirators. And that witness had been, um, you know, both hypnotized and um, administered sodium pentothal and, and asked a whole series of very leading questions. So it was uh, the foundations on which that prosecution is built are extremely shoddy. And inevitably, there were rumors that Garrison also had his own relationships in New Orleans. So, yeah, and you know, somebody asked me about this at the at the Tennessee Williams Festival last weekend about why I didn't include, you know, information 
about that. And, and what I told this person, and, and I believe it to be true, is that what I really decided to do in the book is really stay in the documents. Because early on, I did interview people, and I just found what people had to say about Garrison and Shaw very polarized. And it was, it was difficult for me to, if I'm going to try to be balanced, it was really difficult for me to assess who was saying something that was true and who was saying something that was just, you know, a matter of opinion or gossip. And so I really stayed in, you know, historical documents. And that's the way I made decisions about what to include or not include, uh, about what I thought I could show having happened with very high level of certainty. I also think that district attorneys who live in a sleazy world, you know, a lot of sleazy people are vulnerable to a lot of rumors um, being thrown their way. And so we, I mean, it could have been true. I don't know, but I can, you know, I can see it. Uh, I can see it happening. All right. One bit of unfinished business. A, a while ago, when we were talking about the, uh, uh, about the French Quarter and the music and the blues. I, I wanted to include a little, a, a little uh, piece of music from a, uh, Blue Lou Barker. And this would have been a little bit later. This would have been like in the 1940s. But I think it reflects some of the body blues, the suggestive things. This was the all-time classic, won't you feel my leg or don't you feel my leg? And so just want to play a little of that. She was the wife of Danny Barker, and they were like just a, a really famous couple in New Orleans. That just reflected that, that kind of music. So, um, what's your next book? Well, I don't know. I'm thinking about that and um, writing on some projects, and we shall see. And I wish I had a better uh, marketing answer for you at the moment, but uh, it's kind of a to be determined thing. All right. Just to tie up the Kennedy thing, the inevitable question what do you think happened? I think uh, Oswald acted um, and is the only culprit who is ever likely to be identified specifically uh, in the president's murder. All right. So you don't think anybody made him do it? Or I certainly don't think anybody made him do it. I think, uh, you know, whether there was some larger conspiracy is, is the central question, but I think there's plenty of evidence. Uh, to put Oswald on the hook. Unfortunately, Oswald was killed 48 hours after these events, leaving many questions uh, to never be answered. And that has aggravated uh, any uncertainty that might have existed about his guilt uh, in the immediate aftermath. Of course, another possible New Orleans angle was the people that suggested a link to Carlos Marcello uh, in uh, New Orleans, but I don't think any of them have been proven. Yeah, I mean, people still do that. So, um, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's a mystery that drives people crazy um, and, you know, sort of animates a lot of argumentation. Um, but, you know, if I was pushed into one corner or the other, I would say Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin. Okay. It's been delightful. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for okay. having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.